Welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. I'm your host, Amber. My vision for this podcast is to showcase experts in the keto carnivore community, as well as those who have compelling stories that inspire and give others hope. My wish is that no one has to suffer like I did. If you find value in this podcast, please consider subscribing and hitting that notification button. And as always, feel free to share. Thank you so much for your support. Hi, I'm Amber, and welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. And today we have a special guest with us, Jeanette Louise. She is an ex-bodybuilder. Um, she is a carnivore and an intermittent fasting enthusiast and a huntress and a conservationist, which I think is super cool. And I'm dedicating this episode to my son because he has been asking for something along this line. So welcome, Jeanette. Thank you so much for having me. That's awesome. Okay, so to start with, let's get a little bit of your background. Let's, let's talk about how you found your way to the carnivore diet. And within that, I want to hear a little bit about your bodybuilding and how that whole process really played into some of your issues. So um, from the time that I was 21 was when I first was introduced to dieting. And I think that that probably the first time I realized that I associated food with weight because before that I didn't, I didn't have a weight problem. I never did uh, until I started dieting. <laughs> so, you know, my, my association with food um, completely transformed and, uh, and, and then it just became this food was about calories in calories out, you know, what type of foods I'm eating, um, you know, goal, uh, gym goals, um, it's just very, very interesting how, you know, up until I had started dieting, I, I never actually had a weight problem. Um, so fast forward, um, many, many years of attempting to step on stage and, uh, you know, hit these goals, but uh, I'd stayed disciplined for a long time. But for me, during this process, I felt that it was just very unsustainable. And then in 2012, well, 2011, I had actually started uh, a new journey and um, finally found a coach that was extremely no-nonsense. And in his world, there are no cheat days, cheat meals. There's no cheat anything. Like, if you're, if you're going to train with him, you're in it for the long haul. Like, you're, you have to stay completely disciplined. And I went from around 165 pounds down to 130 pounds in a very short amount of time. And that was a complete shock to my system. And it, uh, it was a lot of time training and um, a lot of time prepping. And my diet was horrible. <laughs> I mean, I felt better, especially as I was getting stronger because I was, I was getting very strong and very lean and my body was changing. Um, even though my mind hadn't really caught up to the changes in my body, but, um, you know, it was, it was, you really have to be consistent when, when your goal is to step on a stage. So I finally hit my goal in April, 2012. And I stepped on stage at 15% body fat and I was 130 pounds. That was my first competition. And it was a blast. It was such a blast. I mean, I felt like that was so many years in the making that 
you know, I, I finally said, girl, you got it. You know, you can do this. If you just train hard and do what you're told, you can get there. And so it was so funny because my first competition, I'm backstage with all these girls and, and they're, um, you know, they look so beautiful, so beautiful. And just these, you know, really gorgeous physiques and um, beauty. they all have their hair and makeup done. And I had my hair and makeup done too. And, and I'm just smiling and I'm waiting. I'm not even nervous at all. And a lot of them are back there and they're crying and, you know, they're so nervous. And I'm like, you're going to mess up your makeup. Like you're, you're tanned and you're not supposed to get wet. And you got all your makeup uh, professionally done. You're going to mess that all up. It was just, it was interesting. Um, but I don't know that day for me was just such a, a day that the only thing I could associate with stepping on stage and so I, I knew that I, I, I knew that I did not produce the physique that uh, a majority of these women have that would, you know, definitely place, but that really wasn't my intention. I was just happy I got there and that I was considered, you know, stage worthy and um, that I could walk out with confidence and um, that I, you know, I had a really good coach that had my back that, you know, even though he thought that I was cheating uh, because I, I wasn't losing the weight that he had expected me to. But again, this is years of metabolic damage and yo-yo dieting um, that it, it just, it took such discipline and really hard work. For me, because I didn't grow into my physique, I, I had to shrink into my physique because I'm considered a transformation. And, uh, you know, it, and there's a lot that's involved mentally to get there. And, and I believe that almost anybody can get there. But I think the true, um, the, the true results are how long can you sustain that? Can you keep that? You know, yeah. it's, is that your lifestyle? And, and for me, it, it like, I never imagined myself. I never wanted to go pro. I, I didn't want to spend all my days in the gym. I just, I just wanted to get there. I just wanted to see what it felt like. And I also think on some level, I, I felt like having the body that I desired would have made me a happier person. Yeah. That it, it would have somehow fixed my life's problems if, if I just had the body that, you know, you know, it's like, that's so oh, funny. Oh, I, I do. I do. I do. Oh, we uh, lie to ourselves that way. And, and while it opened up some doors for me, it, it really showed me that it, it does not, at the end of the day, like you have to be happy internally. Otherwise you can easily sabotage all the things that are external and it really truly comes down to what's going on on the inside that's absolutely and, and correct. The transformation on the inside yes so um so i i uh competed again in a year later and uh that competition i actually placed um in the top 15 but you only like place in, in the top five I just happened to make the 15th and after the 15th like you don't even make it on the board you're like not even existent. <laughs> but I was just so happy because I I was in the class that I'm in that's the most average class so of course there was like 150 girls so to feel like I actually got a, a placement was yeah. really really awesome. And, um, so I had stepped on stage at, uh, 11% body fat and I weighed 122 pounds. 
Um, and, you know, I had a lot more time to build more muscle and I was taking some collagen supplements. Um, and I felt like my body was actually really starting to uh, thrive physically. But during that, during that uh, phase of, uh, before I stepped on stage, you know, I had gone through, I, uh, I was hospitalized twice from dehydration. Um, I was, uh, I, when I was there between prejudging and finals, I was having really, really bad panic attacks. I'd have to leave the auditorium and go find kind of a quiet, small room and just kind of breathe. And I didn't know what was really happening to me. So um, post-competition, I had a huge crash. And while, um, you know, while I, I had attained some amazing uh, physical goals, my, my health really declined and it, it declined quickly, unfortunately. And I, uh, I killed my adrenals. Um, so my, my stress literally went from, you know, zero to a hundred. Um, I, I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic attacks. Um, I remember I was leaving, I was moving to Colorado because I was living in Southern California at the time. And, uh, and my friends were getting ready to come pick me up. And I started having this really, really bad panic attack before they got there. And I had to sit in the closet, you know, and just kind of talk myself through this because the anxiety got so bad. And, and when you have something like that happen and with, without really an awareness of it, your brain's trying to make sense of what's happening and why is it happening? So you have the anxiety, but then when you don't realize why this is happening, that puts in a whole new level of fear. So I basically, you know, told my coach what was going on and, and we need to just back off for a while, eat more fats, uh, don't train so hard. And so I did, I basically backed off and, and then um, I moved back to Washington a few months later. And uh, I think I mentioned this in, in the other videos, that's when I put down the fork and, or put down the weights and picked up the fork. And, and you know, quickly within, I'd say probably two years, I put 60 pounds on. It was quick, yes. Wow. It was, uh, and, and I think that ultimately that's because the lifestyle itself was just about depriving, you know, depriving myself of sugars, depriving myself of fats. And so when I rebounded, my, my brain just went into this frenzy and it was sugar, 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 sugar all the time. It was a really bad addiction and uh, when I first started, you know, dating my boyfriend, he, you know, bless his heart, he, I could weigh 130 pounds, I could weigh 230 pounds, he, he still loves me for me, and as he's seen what's going on with my sugar addiction, he's like, your, your, your blood is solid sugar, I think you, you actually have a sugar addiction, and I'm like, well, probably, but I mean, oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> and that was a really unfortunate, you know, place because going from restricting and associating so many negative feelings to restricting, um, to feeling the freedoms again, to satisfy and get that dopamine really eating the sugar. And it wasn't just, 
you know, when I wanted to eat it, it was like all day long chasing that dopamine rush from eating sugar. And I'd wake up in the morning and I'd eat sugar. And throughout the day, I'd drink sugar and eat sugar. And at nighttime, I'd have more sugar. So, yeah. Goodness. Okay. So when, when you recognized you were having all these issues and you started down the path to realizing that you didn't need the, the carbs, the vegetables, the et cetera, and you started eating a more meat-based diet, go right. over some things that improved. Um, how long have you been eating that with carnivore? Okay. So I kind of want to back up to keto real quick because I had, I had tried I, when I, knew that I needed to lose that weight again. I knew that there's no way I could ever go back to a, uh, a competitor's diet. It was just in my, in my mind, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And so I had found keto and I thought this is great. Uh, even though it went completely against everything that I had known that you could lose weight from, you know, I was eating a lot more fats, but I was, I was losing some weight until I hit a set point. And then I kind of went back. And so I went back. So I gained more weight and then I went back on keto and then I lost a little bit more weight, but I could never break through the set point until I started incorporating intermittent fasting. And in April, 2017, I had actually uh, weighed my, my heaviest at 190 or 191 pounds. And so I started with keto and then I started incorporating intermittent fasting and it just, it was gradual. And then and then I was able to fast for long periods of time. I had done some extended fast. And then like my method was alternate day fasting. And I was losing like two pounds a week. And then within five months, you know, I'm back in the 140s. And it was great. And, and it just felt so easy. And then I couldn't fast anymore. And it became very stressful on my body. And, and so, you know, my my meals, I like to eat big meals and then fast for a long period of time. So while I couldn't really fast what, what I had intended on fasting, I go and I eat this massive, massive meal with the intention of fasting for a long period. And then I hit, you know, 18 hours or whatever, and then I become highly stressed. And so I go ahead and eat another really, really big meal. So while I could eat this 3,500 calorie meal, I could you know, alternate day fast and stress that out, it kind of became like I was eating 7,000 calories in, you know, two days. It's kind of how it, it measured out. Even though I didn't necessarily calculate, I just knew with the amount of fat that I was eating. Um, so over time, you know, I had put back on a lot of weight and then um, it was April that I you know, again, stepped on the scale and realized that I had creeped back up to 175. And I, along with that came a whole heap of other problems. And I went to the doctor and she told me that either I needed to go have physical therapy or I was at risk of surgery. And, and it just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like this is, this is not my future. And what have I been doing? Like, where did I really go wrong in? Because I feel like I, when I set my mind to something, I can do it. But where did I go wrong? What, what was it that has caused me to have success and then immediately erase all that success? And now I'm here. And, and then I remembered Sean Baker. 
and his video uh, on Joe Rogan. And I was like, you know, I think I'm going to go back and watch that video. And then I remembered Kelly Hogan. And I was like, this, I remember, you know, watching her back in 2018 when I had originally tried Dirty Carnivore. And then I'm thinking, man, I, didn't, I, need, to, I need to get to the basics. I need to get to the basics of my health. Stop trying to biohack my, my fat cells and, you know, trying to manipulate my scale and lose weight as quickly as I can. Uh, I really need to go back to the basics of my health. And that's where I started. And so I just said, all right, if I end up, you know, having a really hard time with this because I was so addicted to those artificial sweeteners and cheese, I don't know what else to do. And thankfully, because my intention was to just eat beef, okay, just eat beef, keep it super simple, don't get sucked into all these different videos that are out there on YouTube. One person's going to say this, another person's going to say that. Just stick to the people who are tried and true. Their message has been the same and just keep it simple and go from there and take it one day at a time. And that's what I did. And so um, I just started with beef patties. And for that day, I didn't have any artificial sweeteners or cheese. Next day, same thing. I just had beef patties. Didn't have any artificial sweeteners or cheese. So it was interesting because I was thinking that I was really going to set myself up because I was, you know, I was really going to crave sugar. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't crave sugars. Um, and, uh, so the eating part became really easy at that point. And I, I think it's probably because I don't know, maybe I'd had come from a completely different place and it really wasn't about what I, what I weighed. It ultimately was about, all right, I'm going to put my trust in this process that this is going to fix what's going on with my body at this point because I, I I don't know how I keep getting here and ultimately um through that I uh I went through a little bit of a weird stage where you know for a little over a week I was super fatigued really really tired and uh and then once I got through that it was like increased energy just so much more energy and um Every day has just really been the intention of, of healing my body. And ultimately that's pretty much what has gone on is I have improvements, slight improvements every single day. And I, I eat, I eat a lot of beef. <laughs> I eat a lot of beef. I eat venison. I eat elk. Um, I, I eat some, some pork uh, from time to time and I'll incorporate some eggs. Um, but other than that, and then of course, fat that I render or, you know, fat off of, off of fatty cuts, but that's, that's pretty much it. And it, it, every day I look forward to eating that. I don't, I don't think about what I can't eat. That's not even a thought process anymore. I don't think about snacking. I, and that's a new thing for me too, because in my boyfriend the day, he was like, he goes, I, you know, I just don't, like, you don't, you're not at the fridge. Like, you don't snack anymore. And he's like, I barely even see you eat anymore, but I do. It's because I have like one meal, mostly one meal a day, um, or I'll have two meals. But um, for the most part, it's just one meal. And then I'm, I'm like so satiated. And it's not because I have an intention that I need mm -hmm. to fill this empty pit in my stomach and bear through it because I want to lose weight. It's, I don't even want to think about eating right now because I'm still pretty satiated. 
But when a hunger comes, it does come pretty quick. Because I can like be completely satisfied and then, you know, 24 hours in still completely satisfied. And then an hour goes by and I'm like, so hungry. I got to eat right now. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's very interesting that way. And I feel it more like on a stress level versus a, um, a hunger pain, you know, like that empty, mm-hmm. emptiness in your stomach. Mm-hmm. I totally um, know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, this time it, it really has been more, and I, I really got to emphasize when I say this, in my 20 plus years of being in the fitness industry, for the first time, this is about the process, not the end result. Every that. day it is about how am I going to feel today? And I'm so excited that I get to eat what I absolutely love. And all it's going to do is contribute to better health. Well, let's get into the huntress part of you. (laughs) I want to know, when did you first start to hunt? How old were you? Well, when I first got my hunter safety license, I was 15 years old. So, and in the state that I live in, when you pass the hunter safety, then you you have your wild ID for life. So um, you don't have to renew it. You don't have to retest for it over, you know, a certain amount. And in fact, if you're even born before a certain year, you can hunt without a license. So um, I didn't start hunting uh, until I didn't, I didn't harvest my first animal until 2017. Um, I was introduced more to hunting when I uh, first got together with my boyfriend. He's an avid hunter and he's been hunting for over 35 years and he, it's a huge passion of his. And so when I was around it and, and saw it, um, I really saw it and it, it was an eye opener for me because uh, this moment, as I'm hearing him talk about uh, talking about the deer and talking about the trail cams and um, <laughs> talking about, you know, just all, all the nuances of, you know, scouting and, and, you know, finding the deer that you want to harvest and paying attention to uh, the nuances. Like I didn't, I didn't understand any of it. I was just like, Oh, okay, great. Um, so it wasn't until the, the morning, um, the first morning that I uh, watched him take a deer for the first time, my initial response to that was very interesting because I just had this overwhelming sense of compassion watching an animal die. It was my first reaction, honestly, was how cruel. And um, it didn't come together for me until and again, that that reaction was coming from a major place of um, unawareness you know I, I I didn't that was just an emotional reaction because I'm an animal lover and uh, so as I started realizing you know okay this so where where do we go from here and he had me you know, become part of the whole process and um, I didn't realize that for a lot of hunters it's very much a, a ceremonial type of practice because it's the kill is the very last part there's so much involved in it and and so many hunters have the utmost respect for wildlife and it's about conservation and and animals need space to thrive they need shelter they need 
uh, food, they need water, they need space to thrive in a habitat. And so part of hunting is making sure that as the new babies come up, that they do have that space um, you know, to, to thrive in a habitat to uh, promote good genes in their gene pool. Um, so I became extremely interested in the whole process of um, dressing in the field, um, you know, gutting it and uh, skinning it and, and butchering it and, and then of course eating it. And so that, that was my introduction uh, into, into the hunting world. And it uh, took a few years of, you know, him inviting me on his Montana trips. And he ended up um, drawing a very special tag in 2015, which, you know, at that time, I was just like, oh, no, you go, you go. If I had known today, or if I had known then what I know today, I would have been all over that opportunity just to be part of that hunt with him. Um, but, you know, at the time I wasn't until 2016 that I decided to go with him on a Montana, on a Montana hunt and just the whole experience in and of itself and how much work is involved in, in, in this whole process. And it is, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of blood, sweat, tears, um, for everything to go down um, without a hitch. And ethically um, and then you know when, when it's over it's over and then you have the memories and I really felt like that experience for me was was pretty superior because I got to spend a lot of time in the wild and observing their behaviors and and watching them and uh, just becoming really enamored by uh, the rut and, and watching what was happening during the rut and you know you'll you'll watch a buck completely throw down with another buck and then a doe goes by that's obviously an estrus and they're done that's it like they're done they're done fighting and then they're chasing this doe and and watching them with this interaction it's just it's just really cool because they're communicating with one another and and it's just such an interesting thing to witness and for hours at a time just to watch and uh, from the sidelines and, and it's just such a cool experience. So that caused me to kind of open up my eyes a lot more and then I started reading a lot more on what is conservation and you know what what I was educating myself on was really our history of conservation and uh, you know, a lot of hunters don't just throw out stuff like the um, Pittman-Robertson Act and what that means to hunting and conservation. And so I started learning about that. Okay, so as like a carnivore, a lot of us, and, and me included, I mean, we are so far removed from where our food comes from. What is your thoughts on that? Because like, there are carnivores who are hunters. There are, absolutely. But I think a large majority of us, you know, we eat meat, we go to the store, get meat, or we go to a farm and, you know, source some meat. You have an opinion on that. What, what is your... I do. I do. Well, from experience, you know, when I was a competitor, I was at the store all the time, in the meat section, all the time. And for me, it was price per pound. Um, you know, I wanted the skinless 
chicken breast because I wanted the most amount of protein. And that's how I shot. Not once did I ever associate the chicken. I never thought about the life of the animal. You know, for me, it was just the end result, how it was packaged, how much it's going to cost, how much, you know, how much meat is this going to get me until the next time I have to go to the grocery store. And that's, you know, that's just, that was, I don't want to say sad reality, but that is a reality. Now, being a huntress, I am way more aware of where my meat comes from. And I do believe that when you can, when, for example, when we go to restaurants, who just sits down at their table and when their steak arrives, they think about that cow? Or when their burger arrives, no, they're thinking about getting my belly. Oh, this is going to taste so good. You know what I mean? We're thinking about our palate. We're thinking about, you know, probably the price. <laughs> Was it worth it? Um, but we don't really think about the life of the animal. And that is very much a big part of what brought that steak to your table. Is there was an animal that had to live. It was raised, um, hopefully in a humane manner. Um, unfortunately, in, in other manners, no, not so much. And uh, that's kind of the one thing that I, I do fight against is I, I choose not to support factory farming. And I, I don't think that it is um, a good thing at all for animals to be cooped up and um, not given the space that they need. Um, and pumped with a bunch of um, antibiotics and hormones. And it, it is a really sad reality. And, and that type of meat I don't even find uh, would be um, good quality meat, uh, specifically because when you're stressing out the animal, um, that animal is not gonna produce uh, very good uh, vitamins. Uh, very true. Mineral profile. Mm -hmm. So um, happy cows, if they're in a pasture raised, <laughs> I mean, you know, for example, my friends here on the island that raise Wagyu, these, these are the happiest cows. I mean, they, they live their entire lives in the pasture up until the last two days where they're basically in a hay pen to, take, to segregate them from the rest of the herd uh, for two days. And it's usually, you know, three to five at a time, um, but still a lot of space and they get a lot of hay. But they're with their herds in the pastures um, all the way up until pretty much slaughter. And so, you know, they, they live very, very happy lives. They can roam free. You know, um, there's, they're not being injected with hormones or, or antibiotics uh, or manipulated, you know, to, uh, to grow larger in a shorter amount of time. Um, and every single, every single uh, harvest that I get is just phenomenal. I mean, extremely phenomenal tasting. The quality is just beautiful. Um, so to kind of go back to what we were talking about, you know, associating the animal with, with the food. Um, when, when I started hunting, my awareness um, became so profound that it, it really started the journey of nose to tail with me because I understood the importance that um, there's so there's a lot more to to the animal than just you know the meat and and the cuts and the burger and uh, utilizing as much as I can uh, not only for 
sustainable health, but really out of respect for the animal as well. And I, I understand that uh, for some people, it's a little ridiculous to name, to name the animals because you're going to kill it. It's, that's an emotional response. I think I, I do. And I even, I nickname the deer mostly because of their behaviors or basically just to separate that deer apart from the other deer. Right. Uh, and so when I harvest that deer that I've named and I go to pull the meat out of the freezer before I eat, I can say thank you. And so I know exactly what animal I'm thanking and um, some people do that, some people don't. That's just for me. And uh, I don't think that that's, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, either way. But I, I do believe that uh, for anyone that just has more of an awareness that the animal did live at one point, it lived hopefully a very good life. Um, it does, it does create, I think, a more, uh, stronger response to the meals and knowing that that meal is there to sustain you and mm -hmm. not provide you um, with you know nutrition um, versus just here's a burger on the plate and that's going to fill your stomach and now you get to move on with life I get to eat off that animal for the next six months and you know yeah I'm thankful for that and there's nothing wrong with you know having the gratitude and showing the gratitude and, you know, uh, demonstrating a bit more gratitude when you eat. So you're saying that there is in fact a possibility for you to be an animal lover and a hunter at the same time and a carnivore. Most hunters are, uh, are they are animal lovers. They, they have dogs that go with them on all their hunting trips. Their animals are very much their family members. And yes, uh, you know, before I, before I shot my first year, I really struggled with that. And I had some dreams about it because I, I think what people associate with how can you love animals and kill animals is that you're somehow causing suffering mm -hmm. to those animals when in actuality, what you're doing is you're ending the life much quicker than anything in the wild would end that life. Either it's going to get hit by a car and uh, suffer for a while, or it's going to get eaten alive by an apex predator. Which is worse. It is. <laughs> It is. It's, I can't watch those videos. If I see something like that pop up, it, it, it kills my vibe more than anything. I need to just shut the internet down for a while because I, it's brutal. I have, it's brutal. It is. It is. It's, it's really hard to see, but that's very much, uh, that's the wild. It's life. It yes. It's brutal. It's very brutal. Um, so for me, uh, I, I have to make sure that I, before I pull that trigger, I am 100% confident in, in taking that shot. If I'm not, I, I'll pass up. And if I pass up and, and that's my opportunity, then, oh, well, it is what it is. But I will not take a shot on an animal that I'm not completely confident in because that is highly uh, unethical in my opinion um, for me. Right. So um, I agree with you. 100%. When when I yeah, when when I uh got my first license in two thousand seventeen and I had anticipated on shooting my first deer, 
I lamented quite a bit on making sure that when I took that shot, that it was a perfect kill shot. And, and I went into it with like, oh, you know, I, every time I shoot, it has to be, you know, an instant kill shot. Well, yes, we all have that intention, obviously, but sometimes that's not the way that it goes. And, and that's a very uh, hard thing to swallow and you do feel like the worst person in the world because the last thing you want to do is cause harm or suffering to an animal. There's a huge uh, silver lining there when it comes to people's understanding of hunting and those that are just um, wanting to hurt animals because uh, causing an animal to suffer is way different than um, harvesting an animal to feed your family uh, and, and contribute to wildlife management. And I wish that more people would um, watch some hunting shows before they made that judgment or um, read uh, a little bit more on what conservation is before you know, making that judgment because most of us, and, and it maybe it is because of our love of animals that causes uh, most hunters to um, spend thousands of dollars of high-tech equipment to make sure that it's an ethical <laughs> yeah. shot or you know to understand the amount of hours that's in it practicing and practice especially for bow hunters bow hunters have to practice and practice and practice before their season starts to make sure that when they make that poke it's an ethical poke and so many things can go wrong and you know there's just so much involved in that entire process that those that don't understand hunting, they, they don't even, they're, they're just so unaware of how much is actually involved for that, mm-hmm. for that one second shot. <laughs> the amount of hours, time, money involved leading up to that one shot that literally takes one second to end the entire hunt. And when especially for bow hunters who have the most coolest experience getting so close within range of these wild Mm -hmm. animals um one of these days you know i would love to be a bow hunter when time allows that i can practice um, the amount of time that that i would need to practice to to execute um you know a shot with a bow but for them to hike into the super rugged country and get so close with every everything in the element working against you. It could be rain, it could be wind, it could be um, stepping on a twig, and then the next thing you know, that was your shot, and you know it could be a tag that you've been putting in for for 20 years, and then that's it, it's done. There's so many highs and lows um, involved in the entire process, but when you get to when yeah. you get to execute on something like that, and it goes down. And, and you get to harvest that animal. I mean, that's a memory. That is a memory that no one can ever take away from you. Um, and, and, and when you can harvest your own meal, that, that strong awareness of this was a live animal, you become part of the aftermath of the animal's life. You know, it's all in your control that you get to break that animal down, use its hide, use its bone, use its organs, use its meat. And that animal did not die in vain. Uh, it didn't die in the winter. Uh, it didn't get eaten alive by an apex predator. 
um, it didn't become succumb to disease. Um, so, and then the hunter has probably, you know, one of the best memories that they get to keep with them for, for many years. And, and, you know, we do live in those moments because they are so special. And I feel that that's what keeps a lot of us grounded is being out in the nature and with the wildlife and studying their behaviors, because you do, if, if you want to be a successful hunter, there's so much time involved in scouting and, and studying their behaviors. And uh, so I was watching this episode of Live to Hunt and um, it took, I think it was like four years in the making of Cody actually harvesting this animal. Whoa. And, and his story on how it all went down and, and his history with this one specific deer completely embodies what, what it really is like to, to successfully harvest a deer that you've invested so much time into and for it to actually happen. He'll never forget that. In fact, I'm sure his grandkids will be telling that story. Um, and, and things in life can never take away from that joy, that moment, that level of true, raw appreciation that you have for respect for the land, respect for the wild, um, and then, you know, respect for your body and, and how you feed your body with this amazing organic um, meat that is extremely nutritious and very delicious. Yeah, I, you know, you know, my two boys, my husband and son are mm -hmm. avid hunters and my son, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, that boy, he, he does not come back from a hunt rarely without getting something. He's a darn good shot and, but he practices a lot and this is his passion. That's what he does. He's a bow hunter, as you mm -hmm. know, and I'm going to tell you, I, I have seen the whole process. I don't mm -hmm. hunt but I live it. Let me tell you from the, when they very start planning their next trip until they, you know, get their equipment and, and they're doing, you know, elk calls and they're, you know, trying out different equipment and different boots and, and they're searching on the mountain. They, they have topographical type, you know, maps and they're looking and seeing where they're going to mm -hmm. place their camp and where they're going to scout and holy cow, it's a process. And mm -hmm. I'm exhausted just hearing about it. Mm -hmm. And then when they come home, oh my, you know, you hear about this. And my son's one that does the whole stocking, you know, he gets as yes. close as he can. And yes. he talks about these stories that he's so close that it's crazy, but he couldn't get a shot because he was too close. And so, you know, all these crazy yeah. stories, but that's like their passion that, and, and they love animals. They absolutely do. So, you know, to, to equate hunters with being cruel is not true. Not that you don't have jerks. You're always going to have jerks, no matter I don't right. care what you're right. dealing and with. And they are, yeah, but, and they are, and they're out there. And those, you know, generally are, um, you know, poachers. Poachers yeah. don't have respect for the wildlife. I don't, I don't find that they're uh, animal lovers at all. Um, because if they were, they would never desecrate an animal. Uh, or disrespect wildlife. Wildlife belong here just as much as we do. And if we didn't have hunters, how would they be managed? How would they be managed? And you would see a lot more disease. You would see way more animals getting hit by cars. You would see um, a lot more migratory animals, you know, trying to find um, a strong habitat and they end up in, in habitats that, that they won't thrive in because they don't have 
either the food sources or the water sources that they need. So, you know, I think the hunters play one of the biggest roles in wildlife management and in, in helping mm -hmm. the populations truly thrive. So it, it, is, it is essential that, um, that hunters uh, are, are here because you can't leave it up to the fishing game department entirely to, to manage these habitats. It's just um, not realistic. They wouldn't have the manpower or the resources to do that. I'm not a biologist, um, but what I do know is that every single hunter that buys a license is contributing to a lot of resources for the wildlife uh, fishing game department um, for them to do what they need to do to monitor, um, study and, and help us learn more about the species and uh, where they migrate to and relocating animals so that they can um, build uh, you know a stronger population in certain areas. So you know we do leave it to the scientists to help with that part in our ecosystem but um, hunters play a very very big role in conservation and every ethical hunter that you need is, is an animal lover because they do care about the life of the animal. They, they do care about an ethical kill. They do care about proper field dressing. Um, and, and they care about making sure that uh, the animals thrive. So, you know, it's also fun. You know, it's, it's fun to watch animals thrive in their habitat, um, especially in, in larger groups. It is, it is absolutely magnificent to watch a herd of elk, 150, 200 elk, you know, crossing land and highways. And, and it is just, it's awe-inspiring because they're just, they're such majestic animals and, and to watch them in such, such strong herds like that shows that they're thriving. And uh, they're just awesome animals, especially uh, during the rut when you, when you hear a lot of the bugling and, and the cow calling and, and uh, watching their behaviors and, um, you know, you don't have to be, you know, a hunter to get out there and, and enjoy that process. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, prefer, you shoot him with, uh, you shoot him with camera and not with a gun. I know <laughs> there's quite a few of them out there too. Bless them. You know, it's, it's because of them that, you know, we end up with some of the most amazing wildlife shots across our screens, right? And I think it's super cool. So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely not there for everyone to enjoy. I, I could get into that. I just wouldn't want to be doing all the hiking up a mountain thing like what my boys did in Colorado. Uh, no, that did not sound like fun to me. I'm like, I don't get this. How is this fun to y'all? But yeah, they, when they, there, when you're there and you're in the moment, you don't, you don't think about that incline. Your, your adrenaline is, is driving at that point and your body just becomes the back seat. Because if you have that opportunity, you're going to get to your animal. And you know, I, I went on a bear hunt uh, three years ago. And where we were is an extremely rugged country. And uh, you really have to be in shape to climb up these mountains. And when, when we put our stock on this bear, it was a day and a half in the making. And when I finally got to a position to be able to climb up to him, you know, you're in the moment, you know, you're aware, making sure you don't roll your ankles or you don't slide or 
or anything like that. But your your focus is getting to that animal and getting set up with with an ethical thought, and um, you don't you're just not thinking about how much your body aches or oh my gosh how much longer you know what I mean like your your brain just your brain is on adrenaline alone and so it's it's funny how the body can just take a back seat to that and and just do what it needs to do to get there and then when it all comes together it's just such a it's just such a gift that you don't want to pass up and (laughs) and even if you don't get to make the shot to get there and and to have put in all that hard work it makes it worth it every year and I know a lot of people that draw um, special tags that they've been putting in for years decades and they don't get to harvest they they go out on their hunt and you know they either have opportunities or they don't and but it's not for nothing you know because when you're out there and you're you're part of the whole experience that shot is like, like I said before, it's one second, then it's done, it's over with. But the hunt really is about being in the elements and, and challenging yourself and calming down and quieting down and, and being in the present moment. There's never in my life and in my experience, there's never been any other period in my life where I am 100% in the present moment for such a long period of time. And I think that's why so many hunters, they really thrive on, on that process because it's, it, it's so therapeutic to come back to the real world, having had all that time just being in the present moment. And it really is such a gift. And that's ultimately what I really look forward to is being in the wild and, and watching them and putting a stock and taking the time in that stock and you know, allowing things in the moment to unfold the way that, you know, the universe kind of unfolds everything in front of you. And sometimes it is the most amazing, truly amazing experience with, with a success at the end, or it's just a really, truly amazing experience. And you went home empty handed, either way, the experience yep. is still there. And you I think my boys would agree with that. My boys would definitely agree. Now, I just told you they got back from Colorado, I don't mm-hmm. know, three, four weeks ago, whatever it was. And my son got a cow adult. He also put in for a, a bear tag. And he was mm-hmm. really excited about that. But after getting that cow and hauling it off the mountain and everything, he was kind of like, I'm kind of done now. But uh, he was really looking forward to maybe getting a bear. And he actually had the opportunity to do that. He knew mm-hmm. where the bear was. He was going to go back and, you know, uh, stalk the bear again or whatever. But he, he just decided after everything was all done, he was, he was done. I want to know a little bit about the bear hunt. Just, just mm-hmm. talk a little bit about how that went and did if you actually got one, and if you mm-hmm. did, what does bear meat taste like? Bear meat's my favorite. Bear meat is my really? favorite. Yes, it is so tasty. And we make bear sausage out of, mm. out of bear. And oh my gosh, it is just, it's the best. And a lot of bear hunters will tell you the same thing. Um, mm. So yes, we did. Both of us actually got bear and both oh. of us got mature boars because that's what we were, we were uh, going after. We, we didn't want to hurt sows. Um, so uh, our goal is to go after a mature bear primarily um, because it's, it's really about managing 
uh, the population and, and predator control because the, the boars will eat the cubs. Um, so if there is a cell that that boar wants to procreate with, it will eat the cubs. And that is just a really sad, sad reality uh, in the wild. But I mean, that's, that's what happens. So, um, and it's, I don't know if it's taken out uh, another bear's gene pool or, or what, I really don't know why, but that is typically a, you know, part of that process. So, you know, that's probably one of the biggest reasons why sows are so aggressive um, is, is because they don't want their, obviously they don't want their cubs eaten, but, um, you know, naturally they're very aggressive. Even when you see sows mating with, with boars, you'll see they're very aggressive. It's very interesting thing to watch if you've never seen <laughs> two, two bears going at it. I, I can't say I have. <laughs> it, it's just, it's a weird thing. It's, there's uh, a lot of passion and, and the sow is usually the more, more of the aggressor. Um, but bear, so the whole experience was, uh, we were out in this place called Hell's Canyon and there's no service. It's, you're in highly rugged country um, and we're on a jet boat kind of going up and down until we can blast the top of these mountains uh, and, and see if there's, you know, a bear and then get within range to determine the species, whether or not it's a sow or a boar. And if it is a boar, is it old enough? So there's, there's a lot that's involved in um, making your stock on an animal and, and uh, I was fortunate enough that that was my first bear hunt and it's been my only bear hunt, but um, I successfully, and I took a pretty long shot at a, at a steep angle and it was a perfect, perfect shot. I mean, it was through, through, and it was a very interesting hunt because um, when we had climbed, it took me almost three hours just to even climb. So we had spotted him the day before about a mile away we were up on one ridge and we saw him milling in another but there was also um in the across the drainage there was a sow and two cubs so we're like okay that would be really good for to try and go after but we had to wait until the next morning because it, we would have lost daylight by the time we saw him so it was the next morning we went to the bottom uh the riverbed where we had seen him and sure enough he was much further up but he was still there so that's when we decided to put our our stock on him and it, it was a I'd say a 40 percent incline all the way up uh and it was it was hard it was hard to get there but it all happened so fast because when when we got there you know we got set up really really quickly and things are happening really fast and um you know when when I got my my crosshairs on him I mean I wasted I wasted no time and took the shot and uh and it was complete through through double long shot and he stood there for just a second and then dropped and what was so so uh interesting about this is that there was a, a big boulder beneath him and he ended up rolling into this boulder which catapulted him in the air and so he did these double flips and then when he rolled down he rolled right past us and just kept rolling and rolling oh my god we got it all on video it was just extremely amazing to see um 
but uh, you know, he, he obviously he was dead before he even hit that boulder. Um, but it was just something to add to the whole experience. Like, whoa, <laughs> you know, because we were with a guy and the guy's like, I've never seen that happen ever before, you know, and it was, uh, I was still just completely stunned and um, just that whole experience. And I, I remember on the climb down, got to the bottom of the trail, which, you know, after that time, it was probably about two hours later, the adrenaline finally wore off. And I realized what I had done and what, what I had put into this for it to actually become successful. So many people can get to that opportunity if they even choose to, to take it that far and then might not even get a successful shot. So not only did I, you know, climb up and, and give everything that I got to get to where he was and get set up and, and take a shot, it was a completely ethical, perfect kill shot is like it was amazing it was so amazing and that that amount of awareness just completely overwhelmed me and I just started crying and uh, I was so I was in so much gratitude that you know I it was all it, it just all happened you know exactly how you would hope it all had happened and of course you know we took everything um, I had a shoulder mount made out of them and we used all the meat and, um, you know, my boyfriend got his, which we turned into a beautiful rug. And we enjoyed bear for about a year. So nice. it was great. It was so before you took the shot, did you have what they call buck fever? The, the, uh... so I'm glad you mentioned that because I, you know, I said earlier that it happened so fast. I got set up and then as soon as I had my crosshairs on him, I took the shot because that's what happens when you get what they call buck fever, your adrenaline becomes so profound that you cannot control your body. You can't control your breathing and then you're shaky and then you psych yourself out. And because I had worked so hard getting to him, I knew it had to happen fast. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to give myself an opportunity. I had another opportunity um, on a mule deer the next year and the mule deer that I had it, he was so far away that there was a lot of time that was involved that caused me to not be able to control my breathing and my boyfriend was like you, you got to take your eye off of him you just gotta you know I'll watch him he's bedded down you know he's not going anywhere and yeah, buck fever is a very real thing. And a lot of that is because you have way too much time and you're so excited because, you know, it's all going to happen. And sometimes you don't get to do it right away. And this is so crazy for bow hunters and people don't even acknowledge this. Like from a rifle, I mean, you can, you have some time, you know, you've got some distance, but when for a bow hunter, let's say you've got, you've got your target animal bedded underneath a tree and you don't have a shot because most, most <laughs> of the time you want to wait until it stands up because then you know it's a perfect vital shot. But they're in one position for hours sometimes. Imagine, think about that. Think about all those yogis out there, you know, that are in this intense position 
add adrenaline to that and then add stiff muscles to that. And, you know, uh, there's so much involved in that process that, you know, it can either happen. That's why when, when stuff like that happens, it just makes your, your, your experience on such a, a more profound level. Like, like, non-hunters can't even identify with like they can hear people talk about it but I don't think until you're truly there and you're truly in that experience to really know what all went into this moment especially for some bow hunters you know I mean your close proximity and and even just the slightest move can end it right then and there and so all that hard work could be for nothing so you really have to work with what you have and the elements can change and you have to adapt to that change. And some of them, you know, to even get really close, you know, you're barefoot. So you don't even have any protection. My son does that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, you work with your element and, and it really comes down to a lot of skill, a lot of patience. You know, we're not mountain lions. We're not, you know, we don't have the patience <laughs> inside of us like mountain lions do. Right. But sometimes you have to just sit there. And for me, I was, half in a drainage. So I'm, you know, trying to prop my body up while, you know, keeping my scope, keeping him in my crosshairs, you know, he's a like 700 yards, you know, and I, I'm not going to take a shot that far. I had to wait until he came in around 400 yards and then I took my shot. But, um, you know, this was a big mule deer, you know, like I said, my boyfriend's been hunting for 35 years and he's never even shot a mule deer this big before. So, you know, he's very much a part of the whole thing too. It was so exciting for him. Uh, and he really helped me a lot and, and helped me just focus on your breathing, you know, uh, cause when you have all that time, that time is your enemy, honestly. It can be your enemy. (laughs) Yes, I hear about this all the time. And my daughter, the first time she shot a deer, she had that, you know, severe buck fever and she just shook afterwards. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The amount of adrenaline that's going through you. And that's the other thing about hunting too, is that everything can be calm, just so calm. And within one second, your body is just dumping large amounts of adrenaline that you know, life doesn't really give you those experiences either, you know, and into that can happen several times throughout a hunt. And, and that's also something that we really live for too, is just that, you know, that dead quiet. And then all of a sudden just this massive adrenaline dump and it can be because there was a squirrel, you know, or it could be because a doe came running out and you're waiting to see a buck running behind her. And then it's like nothing. <laughs> but it's still it's part of the process and it's a lot of fun and it's exciting and it keeps you um you know just super motivated and uh focused on you know why you're there that's awesome okay before we go i think we're i think yeah oh wow um yeah so i want to know what it was your most exciting and challenging hunt was it the bear hunt or another hunt I would say the bear hunt was definitely exciting and challenging. And, you know, my mule deer was also extremely exciting and and challenging, but I'm going to go back to my very first hunt because Mm. while I relied on my boyfriend to pretty much be my guide and tell me everything that I needed to know, um, I never had anticipated shooting a deer without him. And so when the season started, it was 12 days of no success. And then um, 
And then the morning that I shot him, um, he had to go to work and he said, well, I'm got, I got to go to work today, but you know, if you shoot one, just call me and I'll come home. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> if I'm not going to shoot one, if you're not here, like, what do you mean? <laughs> and, uh, and so he was, you know, showing me the shotgun, you know, just going through the, going through it all over again and making sure that, you know, I knew what I was doing and, and I'm just, you know, kind of half-heartedly listening, but in the other, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, well, it ain't going to happen. You know what I mean? And so a couple, well, no, I'd say it's probably about an hour, maybe an hour later was um, when I, I saw a doe come into the property and where we live, we, you know, we, we have a lot of land. And, and so we do have the opportunity to, to hunt blacktail here. And so I had um, stepped outside and I was contemplating, you know, going into the blind and you know, not really with an intention to, honestly, but then a doe came out and I was like, oh, she's small. She's not going to have anything with her. And sure enough, my first, the first buck I seen and, and it was on. And it was at that moment that I, I felt like I, I made it, you know, I, I, I became a huntress because I knew right then and there that I wasn't doing it for him, that, um, that I was doing this for me because it was either, this is my opportunity. And I felt like it was a true testament to why I was doing it. And while he had been encouraging me and whatnot, you know, I, I ultimately, I, I felt like you know, this was kind of a thing, you know, a couple's thing. And, and, you know, I, I needed him for some reason to help me through this. And it, you know, I faced it myself and I made the decision myself and I remembered everything that he had told me and I grabbed the shotgun and I got set up and I was able to get a perfect shot and it, and he died within five seconds and, and it was executed flawlessly. And, um, and I remember each time I was taking a step to get into position, I could feel my feet underneath me just shaking because of the amount of adrenaline that was going through me. But through that process, my awareness was to go through the checklist and make sure that I was, you know, crossing every T and dotting every I. And, and the fear of being by myself uh, was gone, was gone. And um and I knew that I had it in me and I, and I knew that I wanted to do this for myself and I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget that deer and I'll never forget how I felt afterward and calling him up and, you know, hyperventilating and, and he's like, what's going on? And, uh, you know, he, he was also surprised as well that I took the shot by myself and, and, and that I went down flawlessly and, and he came home and, and took pictures and dressed him. And, um, so did you dress and, him? Yes. I helped. Okay. I helped. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm very much part of that whole process. And, uh, you know, proper field dressing is also very essential. And, and they teach you this in hunter safety mm -hmm. the importance of proper field dressing. And you don't want any of that meat to spoil. So, um, you know, harvesting the organs and, and uh, skinning the hide and, um, you know, uh, proper, you know, hanging, letting it hang and dry out for a little bit before we butcher and, 
and then breaking it down and then trimming it and then processing it and then it's a lot of work I've putting it in the freezer oh my gosh it is so much work it is so much work. so much work <laughs> yes but again being part of that process also keeps you so much more appreciative for each meal because of the amount of work that goes into it and knowing that none of these animals died in vain you know, they lived its purpose, they did its part in the ecosystem, and it went out uh, without knowing what happened. You know, it didn't, it didn't, wasn't running from, you know, no hunter is going to just chase down an animal. There's no, you, no hunter could even catch an animal, you know what I mean? So this animal has no idea what's even happening. Um, and, and even if, say, for a bow hunter, because they do get in very, very close proximity, you know, they might have a, a stunned animal that's like, I don't know what you are, but they're not afraid. If an animal is afraid, they are going to hightail <laughs> and they're gone. That's their instincts. But if they're confused, they might stop and stare, but they're not in fear. So I think that that's also another really big misconception of, of hunters that, you know, they're they're putting all this fear in animals and it's cruel and and it's like, well, this animal has no idea what's going on. You know what I mean? A an animal getting hit by a car and then having, you know, to, to live through that for who knows how long before it finally expires. Now that, that's totally cruel, you know? Yeah. And when certain areas are not managed properly, you do you have a lot more deer that, you know, they're being pushed out, you know, they're running in the streets mm -hmm. or they get very comfortable with where they are because a lot of people treat them like pets. Yeah. Um, and so they lose a lot of their survival instincts and <laughs> true story. Yeah. And, and we see it, you know, we see it in, in certain areas and uh, you know, where we live, we have, you know, a lot of uh, areas on this Island that are heavily populated and they congregate there because they know there's no hunting pressure. They're, they're safe and they're fed. So uh, I, I think that's unfortunately a disservice because then they're going to end up becoming mm -hmm. overpopulated uh, and, and then they're more prone to disease. And that's a very, very sad thing. You know, I don't know if anyone has ever looked up uh, chronic waste disease or blue tongue and what happens to these beautiful creatures when, when they're hit with these diseases. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And yeah, that's uh, uh, so much goes into it that people just have no clue. And, True. you know, I, I guess I'm lucky enough to be around it pretty much my whole entire life even when I was a little kid, not that I've ever done it or probably never will, but. <laughs> but and that's but, fine. Know, and that's totally, yeah, not, not everyone is a hunter, you know, yeah. that not, not everyone that understands it or respects it has to pull, has to pull the trigger. And, and we get that. We understand that. I cook and, it. I cook it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you probably also appreciate it. Oh, uh, I very much do. Yes. <laughs> because it's, it's good quality. And, and you know, that it was a lot of hard work going out involved and going out and mm -hmm. getting that animal. And, you know, we, we grew up on that, you know, that's, that's mm -hmm. how people originally, you know, were able to feed themselves is by sourcing from the land themselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, 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 and it's, you know, it's kind of ludicrous to think that, you know, it's more humane to go to the grocery store and buy packaged mm -hmm. meat than it is to go out and, and kill an animal yourself. And I, I think that those people that feel that way, I um, encourage you to please pick up a book and understand um, the tradition behind hunting and what hunting truly is uh, and how it 
directly correlates with conservation and um, and how those hunters help all public land owners get to enjoy wildlife. Uh, I love that. That's a perfect ending too. Because we were like way <laughs> over, but that's okay. Okay. Stuff. I'm sure my son is going to appreciate this episode. So thank you so much, Jeanette, for joining me. And um, we will have to get together and talk again soon. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Bye, Jeanette. Bye-bye.